Brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty and today I'm going to be talking to a cook who I first saw on Bake Off making a frankly extraordinary number of iced buns. Since then she's made a name for herself as a cookery writer and a TV presenter, particularly known for her takes on family-friendly meals and amazingly indulgent cakes, which we will come on to. Um, Her latest book, Nadia's Everyday Baking, is packed with stress-free recipes and it's already appeared on the Sunday Times bestseller list. We're so delighted she could join us today. Nadia Hussein, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. I've got your book here. My mother-in-law's just gone home. So I cooked the chicken, you know, the um, the chicken curry stew. Yeah. I cooked it once for me and my partner when I first got the book to read for this interview. He liked it so much he would only eat it from the pan. He didn't even have it with rice. And wow. he it, so it said serve four to six and we had one portion left by the end of that night. And then I cooked it again yesterday for my mother-in-law and my mother and my sister. And they were, honestly, I'm not just saying this, they were all going, we would pay for this. This is incredible. This, oh. um, Yeah, I, I'm so grateful to you because I haven't got very much confidence in cooking and I found it so easy to follow. And that makes me so happy. You know, that this is exactly why I write because especially cookbooks, it's so important to, I think there are so many people who have so little confidence in the kitchen. Um, It's really important to be able to pick something up and give yourself the chance to be able to make something. And I think, you know, when you have one recipe and it becomes the thing that you love making the most, that's the thing that gives you confidence to turn the pages and say, well, actually, I might give this a go or I might give that a go. And so, yeah, it's it's so good to hear. And eating it straight out of the pan, my kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, do you want rice? He was like, no, this is incredible. I want to taste. I just want to taste this. I don't want anything else at the same time. Amazing. Yeah. Well, oh, that makes me so happy. No, it's honestly, it's, and what, so why, yeah, why do you think it is that people, because I've definitely said to myself in the past, like, oh, I can't, I can't cook. And obviously I can cook kind of basic things like, cook like a spaghetti bolognese or something like that. But I think people do sometimes say to themselves, I can't do it. And then they don't. Why do you think that is? Um, I think with cooking, it's one of those things. I don't know. I think um, with anything, really, if you think about it, when you start something new or you're, you in, you almost invest in it, don't you? Yeah. You say, oh, you know, what, I'm going to get into painting or pottery or knitting. You go out and you buy the bits that you need and then... I think the thing is with cooking or with anything really that's new, like you're left with something that you didn't want. And I think that is where people get really nervous because not only have they then wasted money, they're like, well, I'm not doing this again. I'll just stick to what I know because I don't want to waste money. And so I think that puts people off. And I don't think there's such, I don't think there's any such thing as I can't cook. I think everybody can cook. And I think sometimes the expectations are too high that we're supposed to cook restaurant standard meals or meals that look aesthetically pleasing. Um, and I think social media has a big part to play in that. But actually, it's just about cooking a delicious meal from start to finish, whether you're following instructions or doing it intuitively. I think that's why people are really afraid. And also, there are loads of people who go out and say, oh, well, 
you know, they say it to themselves, don't they? They convince themselves. They say, oh, I can't cook. That's not true. It's not true. But you're right. I think the pressure I've put on myself in the past sometimes, I've been cooking for other people as well and I've had too high expectations. So then you kind of feel embarrassed, like, oh, I'm going to, you know, it's gone wrong. And yeah. um, Whereas if I'd gone, do you know what? I'm going to give myself an hour to just experiment a bit and try and just follow this recipe. Yeah. Then it, I might have taken the pressure off a bit. Yeah, I mean, you even have like food filters on phones now, which is really interesting because you've got like filters for food specifically. But actually, some of the best moments are the ones that you don't picture. And some of the best moments are the ones where, for me, it's those moments when we're, we've finished a, a dish and my husband takes it to the sink to clean it. He's like, who left all of this? And it's basically all the kind of scrapey sauce bits. He will sit there and he will use a spatula and scrape all the bits off and eat it from the big spoon or the spatula. Yeah, I think social media has a massive part to play in making us feel like we're not good enough. Um, but cooking can be therapeutic. Cooking can be simple. And I think that's, for me, when I write, that is always the thing that's in the forefront of my mind is that I don't want it to feel too fancy or I don't want it to feel too restaurant standard. And I don't want it to feel like there are hundreds of ingredients or a picture that's unachievable. For me, all of those details are really important when I'm writing a cookbook because at the end of the day, it is, you know, it's food. It's supposed to feed. It's supposed to bring joy. And even when, down to the photography, sometimes we do the photography and they clean the edges up. I'm like, no, no, no. Let's leave those edges. You know, where you can see somebody has spent half an hour mixing and you've got kind of splatters around it. Keep those bits because that's real. And, and that's really important. So I'm like everybody's worst nightmare. I'm like, no, 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 let's keep that, please. And they're like, no, we don't want to keep that. But yeah, it's not about perfection. It's just about good, easy food. But I think that's why you chime with people because it's that accessibility. And as I said to the childminder, oh, I'm, oh, I'm interviewing Nadia Hussein and she said, oh, she just feels like one of us. That's music to my ears because I am quite literally one of everybody. I am one of you. I am one of, I'm like everyone else, you know, after this, I will be going in like hoovering and cooking for the masses because I'll be off in three days for work. And so I've got to make sure my kids are fed or it'll be scrambled eggs for four days and we can't have that. So when you're thinking about a recipe, are you always imagining the person cooking it in, you know, maybe push for time, perhaps with kids running around and kind of going, how can I make this simple? Or are there almost two stages where at first you're kind of right, what spice would be best for this? And then you're thinking about making it as accessible as possible. When I have a recipe to test, I'll test it between the school run and my daughter's netball game. And... That is tr that's that's the reality of testing for me is that if I can get this cooked between my daughter coming home and me dropping her off to netball and coming back, finishing it, picking her up and she can eat it, that for me is realistic. So actually the way that you're testing it is the same as probably the vast majority of people who are cooking it. Absolutely. I don't have a fancy test kitchen. I don't have lots of people helping me. I literally do it. I start the process of any book off in my own house, in my own kitchen, because that's where it makes it the most real. You know, I'm very lucky in that I could have all of that, but actually I don't want, all, you know, I, that's not why I, I want to be able to test the recipes. So they're perfect for real families who are short of time and who want to use peas out of, out of a freezer or, or tinned sweet corn or, you know, uh, you know, bits of old bread for kebabs, whatever, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's very much in real time. And I think that really helps to create good, easy, simple recipes for families. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and the book contains so many savoury recipes too, because it's all baking. Yeah. I think when people think of baking, sometimes they think of cakes first. But this book has brilliant savoury recipes in it as well. When you were writing it, was that always important to you to have like a wide variety of, of dishes in there? Oh, absolutely. I think this is about celebrating the oven. This is about making the oven do all the work. And I grew up doing entirely stovetop cooking. So that's what I saw. And in the oven, you know, we had an oven because it was a standalone oven cooker and grill. And and my mum would put the um, frying pans that she used for samosas or paratas or chapatis in there. And I didn't think anything of it. I didn't know that that was an oven. And it was only really when I started to watch TV shows, I realised, oh my goodness, that's that's an action, you know, like that's an oven. And so for me, it was really important to do a book. I really wanted to do a book where everything is in the oven. And that was a test for me too, because actually I used to think, actually, can I cook everything in the oven? Turns out, yeah, you absolutely can. Yes, you know, to some extent, it kind of changes the texture. um, It changes the way it cooks, but with some simple, you know, because I've tested all the recipes myself at home, you know, I know how they all work. There are recipes in there for a masala egg filo pie, which is delicious. There's recipes in there for biryani. There's recipes in there for noodles, you know, and I know purists will listen to that and think, really? You know, you're going to make noodles in the oven? Well, yeah, you know, it, it, it can be done. And I know there are lots of people who do get really nervous when they're cooking. And I think, you know, when you say the difference between stovetop cooking and oven cooking is that when you're stovetop cooking, you're kind of constantly lifting the lid and you're mixing and you're kind of, you you feed into the your fear of, oh, is it going to work? Is it working? Is it looking right? Whereas when you get a recipe and it says, put the lid on, put it in the oven for 40 minutes, you can't do anything. It's like a magic trick. It's like a magic trick, but cooking. And and I think if anybody's looking to get into the kitchen and, you know, finding their confidence in, in being in the kitchen, this is a really good place to start because it is all in the oven. You know, there is nothing to, you know, you, you put the lid on or you don't put the lid on. You just follow the instructions. It's as simple as that. I did feel like it was magic the first time it came out. I was like... Is this going to work? Well, yeah, absolutely. And as you say, you when you can check it the whole time, I feel like that can lower your confidence because you can panic and think, oh, should I taste it now? And should I add more salt now? Whereas actually you do just have to close the oven. You do have to get on with something else. Yeah, I mean, even now when I watch my kids cook, they're like, oh, well, is that the right temperature? Should I turn it down? Maybe it's too high. Maybe it's too low. Whereas with an oven, the temperature is the same. For me, as a mom of three kids doing this job, like being able to put something in the oven and walking away is such a luxury. To be able to just put it in the oven and say, do you know what, actually, I've got 30 minutes, I can watch an episode of some trash telly and I can make a cup of tea, you know, why not? Why wouldn't you choose that over standing at the stove? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, when we have people on this uh, podcast, we ask them to bring in some items, some objects. Um, Some of them are kind of virtual objects or memories. Um, So I'd like us to talk about your first item now. um, And it's something that reminds you of home. So the one thing that reminds me of home is a, um, so it's a chicken korma. And it's, for me, it's not even actually the eating, physically eating the chicken korma. For me, it's what it reminds me of. And my mum only ever cooked chicken korma twice a year. So that's 
both Eids, she would cook a chicken korma. And it's one of the simplest recipes, but it's one that we only eat twice a year. So you can imagine how special that is. Considering we eat curry all year round, there is something so distinctly different about this curry because it's so fragrant. It's not harsh and you can't smell spices. It's just kind of bubbling away of cinnamon, bay leaves and cardamom. And it's very, very simple. And my mum normally starts cooking it a couple of days before. And that is that, you know, that moment when you know there's like a few days, it's like three days before your birthday. And you're like, oh my goodness, I'm so excited for my birthday. Well, mom starts cooking the korma sort of three days before Eid. And you know she's cooking and she always used to cook it. I don't know why. Um, and I don't think she realized she was doing anything magical, but she would always cook it when we were in bed. And I think it was just that kind of, when we were in bed, it was an element of kind of getting stuff done and, and gently kind of cooking and putting the love and time into this curry. And it uses a lot of onions. So I think she spent a lot of time, she used to sing and chop up these onions. And for me, it's a chicken korma because there was that smell that would come from under the door and I, I'm like oh my goodness it's Eid in three days and we get to eat that and that for me is that that smell that aroma of a chicken korma always reminds me of home and even now when I cook it about twice a year my kids are like oh my goodness Eid is coming so yeah it for me it's something that reminds me of home but I know that somehow it's become the thing that reminds my kids of, of of a special time and I'm hopeful that when they're older it will remind them of home too. And generally when you were growing up were you around your mum when she was cooking like mm. did you used to help her and no, not at all. My mum was um, very much, I'm in the kitchen. And it was for her. Like, it, although I, I love cooking, I love being in the kitchen. I love that I do it for work and I love that I get to cook for my kids. But my mum, um, I'm one of six kids and we had we have a massive extended family. And, you know, every weekend, my mum would have something like 40, 50 people in our house every weekend. And she was exhausted and she hated cooking. She cooked because she needed to feed us. It was simple as that. So whenever I'd come in and ask her a question, she's like, you are either chopping those onions or you are getting out. And I was like, okay. So I'll like chop onions and ask her questions. She hated us being in the kitchen because we were just a nuisance. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people would imagine that, you know, you kind of sat by her side and learnt the recipes. And But it's interesting how things turn out, isn't it? Yeah. That you must have still absorbed that, but in just in a different way. Yeah. Not in that kind of romanticised way of sitting on the floor and observing her. And I hadn't realised that I had such an interest in what she was doing, but I would ask lots of questions. I think that's probably why I got kicked out of the kitchen more than anyone else, is because I kept asking questions. I kept saying, so why do you put that in? And how much of this? And she's like, oh my God goodness just get out of here please but it was only really when she would go away so she'd go away to Bangladesh sometimes for a couple of months because uh, my grandma used to live out there so she'd go out there and spend time with grandma and uh, yeah that would give me the opportunity to get in the kitchen and that to be honest that gave me the opportunity to make mistakes so I would go in the kitchen and I would get things wrong or do a technique wrong or not cook something for long enough or you know so so the, I was doing things wrong but I was also learning at the same time and my dad didn't care he was like look as long as everyone's fed I don't care who cooks so it's probably quite good that you had that freedom yeah 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 my, like by sort of um, my mum used to work in factories and, and my mum, you know, she would say, OK, so could you guys make an omelette? I don't care who makes it, just someone make it. She was happy for us to cook if she wasn't there. She said, just use six eggs. And I said, OK, it's like a delicious masala omelette with onions and coriander. I said six and she said, make it in that pan. And to me, the pan looked very big and six eggs didn't feel like enough. And obviously, because I hadn't learned, you know, how to cook and, and, and how to, it wasn't instinctive for me. I decided that I would use 22 eggs. 
so I made a 22 egg omelette and my mom was mortified she was like oh my it was like it was this thick it was that thick it was hilarious but my mom was not impressed why do you think food has this power in terms of memories because I know exactly what you mean about the smell as you say it isn't necessarily the eating of it it's the smell and maybe the apprehension of but food is something that can really bind memories together isn't it I don't know I think without realising it, we, you know, if you look back at some of the most happy times and some of the most difficult times, there's always food involved in some sort of way. And and I think it's like, I think lots of people say, you know, there's, there's this thing where you can, um, if you go on holiday, you buy a new perfume and use that perfume through your holiday. And so every time you smell it, it reminds you of that holiday or your wedding or, or different kind of like special monumental times in your life. And I think without realising it, like food is that perfume, uh, you know, it evokes those emotions and those feelings that you felt in that moment but yeah you know there's so many different things that you know whenever I think back to some of my fondest memories that there's always food involved there's always something that I ate or something that I smelt or something someone was cooking and it always just kind of sticks with you and I know you said your mum doesn't really like cake you say this in the book but she likes your orange semolina cake when you meet someone obviously you've known your mum for your whole life but when someone when you meet someone or you, you know someone who say, oh, I don't like cake or I don't like this, I don't like that. Do you kind of consider it a challenge to to get them to like it? I do enjoy it. I do enjoy when someone says, oh, well, because when we got married, my husband said, oh, I don't like brownies. And um, he just said, no, that's like that's like cake that isn't cooked. Essentially, that's what brownie, that's what gives it that fudgy flavour where you don't overbake it. And so I took it upon myself to make the best brownies ever and that's exactly what I did and you can safely say now he loves a good brownie so yeah I think when someone says oh I don't like that it kind of does ping inside me and I think oh I think I could oh I think I could make them like that and it has worked like my mum still won't eat chocolate cake because they didn't grow up eating chocolate they didn't grow up eating sweets and my mum thinks it's really funny that I still have sweets in my bag she's like you're not a kid and I'm like okay so sweets are not just for kids but, you know, my mum does not, like, she doesn't have sweets. She won't eat chocolate. I mean, even the the thought of chocolate, she's like, absolutely no way. She would never eat it. I've never seen my mum bite into a bar of chocolate. I think orange is quite a fresh flavour, and I think that's why she likes it. And anything that's got kind of spices like cardamom or or cinnamon or things, or cloves, or, you know, that kind of flavour that she's familiar with, she'll have that but nothing else. So you just need to infuse a bar of chocolate with all that stuff and then slowly... You would know. <laughs> OK, um, well, let's move on to your next memory. Um, this is somewhere you were happy. Somewhere that really sticks out to me would be when I first got married, I was 20. I was 20 when I got married and my husband was 23. So we were very, very young and very, very naive. But we... We used to, so my husband, my father-in-law had a house and we rented a room in his house and it was just him and me and the other rooms were, the other brothers kind of rented and lived in the other rooms and it was just me and my husband. And that was that moment where like we had, it was really simple because we never used the kitchen because we did all the main sort of cooking and, and breakfast eating in, in the main house, but everybody else, kind of, because the family's massive, my father-in-law had lots of houses and he would kind of like, everybody would rent a room and we all kind of stayed close together, which was nice. But we never ate there. And uh, so 
it was really lovely because we'd go up and we'd go go into Tesco and we'd go pick up some snacks and we'd take it up to our room and we'd watch telly and we'd watch movies and we'd have snacks. And it, it was it was my first taste of freedom. You know, it was my first real taste of making my own decisions. You know, if I ever went to the supermarket as an 18, 19 year old, it was with my little brother who was nine at the time and We'd get the weekly shop and we'd get all the things that we needed, but it was never what I wanted or, you know, nothing specific to me. And it was it was such a lovely time because it didn't last very long because we had our son the following year. And, you know, I went through the kind of first part of my pregnancy in that house, in that room. And it, it was a first, my ta- first taste of independence and first taste of freedom. Um, and I got to share that with somebody that I was learning about and somebody that I loved. And that was a really special time because life, let's just say, uh, a year after that, you know, my son was born and it's been manic ever since. And that's like the only real kind of, pocket of peace that I remember, like really kind of just simple pocket of peace. Um, but yeah, that is probably that. When you were pregnant, what were your cravings? Were you eating those same snacks that you started off with in that room? After or? the first trimester, when I um, the sickness had stopped, it was egg sandwiches. I was so scared of eating anything with too much flavour, like spices and stuff. So I was completely off curries, um, anything spicy. And I used to eat really spicy food, but after having my son... 16 years ago I can't eat spicy like super spicy food anymore but egg mayo sandwiches with a dash of salad cream just just for a little extra flavor and black pepper and that's it uh, on white bread and marmite crisps those were the two things that I lived on I kid you not I think I went through 12 packets of crisps a day for about four months and my son was a whopper so yeah Okay, well, let's move on to the next item. This is an actual item. You don't have to show me because I don't know if you've got them there, but that's absolutely fine. Um, It's something you should have thrown away. Well, I haven't got it with me because my mum has it, but it is my granddad's false teeth. I don't know why. I don't know why they've. I mean, they scare the life out of the kids every time they see them. They're like, "Ah, there's teeth in the cupboard," and it's not even like. So my granddad had false teeth, and he. I don't know why he. He was like only fifty something when he died. So. He had false teeth all up the front and then he had one over here. And it's not like, it sounds like a terrible thing because it's my granddad's fault. It's like my mum's dad. So like I can understand why my mum would want to keep something like that. But it's not like, if it's sentimental, you expect it to be in a nice box tucked away somewhere. But it's there amongst the nail clippers and 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 the hand cream. I don't get it. Like, I don't know, why doesn't someone throw this away already? Or put it in a pretty box? I don't know. Do you think it's been that, do you think sometimes, you know, when things are there for so long, like say there's a mark on the wall or you just don't see it anymore? I think it's a little bit like that, um, where you kind of like, you look at it first time, like say like a mark on the wall and you're like, oh, I'm going to get to that and I'm going to paint that at some point. But really you never get to it and, and you're never going to paint it. But I think his false teeth, um, have moved with my mum every time she's moved house always ends up in the most bizarre place and I don't know if that's just my granddad haunting us or, or do you know what I mean I don't know if it's some sort of a sick joke from the afterlife I'm not sure but honestly I always go in I'm like mum find a place for these or throw them in the bin because I can't just throw away your granddad's teeth. I go, they're not his teeth. They're like actually not his <laughs> teeth. So, um, but she puts. But my mum's got twelve grandkids, thirteen, no, fourteen grandkids, and um, it's really funny because through the years, every kid when they become of age of understanding has gone into a drawer and seen teeth and screamed. And I think 
partly, I think there's a joker inside my mum somewhere who quite likes having those teeth there, but I feel like they should have thrown them away years ago, but I think it's a running joke now. We're going to just have to keep those hideous teeth forever. I think they're going to be passed down from generation to generation. I, so I don't want them. <laughs> They'll have to skip you then, go straight to yeah. your kids. Yeah, I don't want them. Thank you. I think it's really apt you've got something from your granddad's mouth because, you know, you you enjoy feeding people so much, you enjoy cooking so much. When you're sharing a new dish with your family and friends, does it feel like a new dish or has it been ruminating in your in your mind for so long that it isn't like this big moment of, I hope they like it? Is it is it more like, okay, I know this is good and now I want to share it with them? Uh, do you know what it is? Because I am constantly testing and changing things around, my family always taste different versions of the same thing. So they never really ever, because I don't throw anything away. I'm like, no, it's going to get eaten. So I will test something and I'm like, okay, actually that needs more, I don't know, citrus or whatever, but they will eat it. So they're not fussy. They love to be fed. They, they're always there in the different stages of creating something or, or finishing a recipe. What's lovely is actually when we get to the finished end recipe they're like oh actually that is absolutely perfect that's exactly what it needed so that's always lovely to get that kind of feedback you know before I used to really worry about what they thought but sometimes I like I will hand over something or I will put something in the middle of the table and they're oh I can't wait to see what that tastes like and then they'll start as if they're Mary Berry and Paul Hollywood and be like oh oh yeah but this I'm like nah I am not on a baking show anymore you don't get to if you like it eat it. If you don't, just put it to the side. No problem. But do not tell me what I should have done with it. Please, for God's sake. And so, yeah, no, I don't allow it. I'm like, no, 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 just dinner. I don't care what you think. But then do they give valuable feedback at different points? You know, are there times that you go, actually, that's really useful? My brother's really good at that. So my little brother, who is 11 years younger than I am, so he's he feels like a complete generation. So whenever I'm testing something, I will always give him a little bit and say, what do you think of that? And he's like, oh, I don't know. He's really good with flavours. Like, he's really, really, he's like, oh, I think this is missing. Well, that's, he's a really good cook. So I'm interested in the way you come up with a new recipe. Are there times that you're eating something and you go, actually, this has sparked off an idea for me? Or are you kind of hit by inspiration in the middle of the night? Sometimes you think, oh, if I if I do this, how, how does it work? That very first um, moment it's you know what it's a mixture of lots of different things it can be um just an idea that just comes to me in the middle of the night and I'm like oh oh I really think that would work and then I'll jot it down it could be something I've eaten so I might sit down at a restaurant and and you know I remember being in Disneyland thinking like everything's going to be Mickey shaped uh, and it's not going to inspire me but we were in um Epcot and and there was like a rice pudding and I was like oh my goodness what is this and so there's um this you know it might be when I'm eating out and something sparks something and that's really delicious and it's that's where my curiosity takes me and it's just like oh how is that made like let me let me think about how that could be made now I'm sitting there and you can see I'm thinking because I'm like sort of in my mouth and I'm like tasting it and I'm I'm kind of pulling it apart and my kids are like oh gosh she's got her work brain on now or it could be travel, you know, I could, you know, I was in Morocco uh, this year with the kids and we had so much uh, messamen and, and, and you know, delicious breads and dips and you kind of understanding the culture of why they cook certain things. And, you know, I got to talking to the waiters and, and the chef and, and then he gave me some of the cardamom that he uh, grows himself. So, you know, and I got to bring that back with me. So, you know, all of these kind of things, like inspiration can come from anywhere, but you know, it ultimately, 
I always end up with something that I really, really want to write about. Well, let's move on to your next. So this is a moment. This is a moment that changed you. A moment that changed me would be when my sister-in-law died this year. So my sister-in-law was 33 years old um, and she died of cancer. It was a short illness, but she didn't make it. And she, um, yeah, uh, 33 years old. Uh, it was it was shocking, but expected at the same time. But even though you expect something like nothing really prepares you for how shocked you feel when it happens. And, you know, it's something that will stay with me forever for the rest of my life because, you know, she left behind two beautiful, very young children. And, you know, uh, watching them live a life without their mum is something that it's going to stay with us forever for the rest of our lives. And um, and that really did, I think for me, when she died, that was one of the biggest kind of, to watch somebody who was a part of your circle fade away like that and then just not be here anymore has definitely, of all the people that I've lost, you know, that she's, you know, I've lost my, um, my pops who died this year as well. But, you know, he was, it was so cruel because he was an, he was an elderly man and, you know, and, 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 you kind of can make peace with that. But with my sister-in-law, she was 33 years old and it, it still stings just to say it. Her life and, and her death and how amazingly strong she was and how composed she was for her children has taught me a lot in my life and however long I've got, you know, and I think it's definitely made me uh, seize the moment a lot more and pick my battles, you know, with my kids when they don't put a wrapper away sometimes. You know what, it's, it's all right. Just pick up the wrapper and it's fine. Mm. Yeah. Do you find that your relationship with cooking changes during these tremendously difficult times? Do you, is your instinct to cook for people to, you know? Yeah, what's really, what's really interesting actually is that when things like that happen, whether it's birth or death, food seems to be the focus point. It seems to be central because, you know, when, when I had my children, I remember the first thing my mum did was cook. She cooked and cooked and cooked and filled my freezer and cooked for me to have breakfast, lunch and dinner. So it was all about just feeding and it's about nourishment and it's about health and it's about just looking out for each other. And I think that's something that I experienced in birth and that's I, I experienced the exact same thing in death. As soon as my sister-in-law had died, it was all about looking after her family and making sure that they were eating because they were in no fit state to cook or look after themselves. So, you know, myself, my sister-in-laws, we all just, it was like a machine. It just, it's something just switches. And we were all just in the kitchen cooking because there were family and relatives that were coming over from all over the country. And there's something really focal about cooking and feeding in those moments, whether they're happy or they're sad. And they are the things that give people comfort. And and it's it was a beautiful thing to see, I've got to say, from my perspective. Food is one of the first things that slips away in those exceedingly stressful and heartbreaking times, isn't it, that you can forget to eat. It feels twofold for me. It's like you are fueling them to get through one of the most difficult times of their lives and yours. And also you're pouring that love into the food. So it's an activity that the actual cooking of it is important as well as the eating of it. Um, I love the dedication you've got in the front to Anne. Um, I've got a really dear friend called Anne who makes this meal called Anne Tuna, which is actually a very simple meal with anchovies and tuna and butter beans and when I read your dedication to Anne it made me think of my Anne 
And whenever I'm making Anne tuna, I think of Anne. I don't see her as much as I'd like to. Do you find sometimes that when you're cooking a specific meal or even smelling that specific smell that you associate with someone like the chicken korma, that memories come back to you while you're actually making it? Have you got um, dishes that remind you very much of like friends and and members of your family because maybe you ate it with them or they taught you the actual recipe? Yeah, there's so many things. Like, you know, I... It's really funny because, like, whenever I fold samosas, whenever I'm making samosas, I always think of my cousin who he's... um, Men didn't really cook very much in our culture, but my cousin would work in the back of a kitchen after school. And at the time he was, I think, no more than 17. I think he was about 16 or 17. And eventually he gave up school just to work in the back of a kitchen. And he was the one that taught me how to fold a samosa properly. And, you know, that's not often, you don't often hear that, like a 17-year-old male cousin teaching how to fold a samosa. But he was the one who taught me how to make samosas. Once a year when it's in season, we'll buy jackfruit. And it reminds me of, like, just the ritual. It's very ritualistic. Like, when you get a jackfruit, you spend close to 50 quid on this massive fruit. And they say it's, if it's a ripe, ready-to-eat, jackfruit then you have you have a good karma uh, but if you don't and it's like inedible then you're not going to have a good year so it's a really funny superstitious thing um and this year <laughs> and I got one this year and it was inedible inedible and I said to my um uncle well lucky I don't believe in all of that he goes you would not be saying that if it was edible and I was like that's also true but yeah you know this is very ritualistic but whenever I do that like I think of my granddad who he taught me how to climb a tree to pick jackfruit I would climb the tree with him and I would cut the jackfruit out of the tree and he would sit there with a net and he would be right behind me and he would catch the jackfruit and then he would come down with it because it was too heavy for me to take down but my granddad taught me how to do that at the age of 82. Well, let's move on to your last item, as it were. So this is a song that moves you. So this is a weird one because like, there's so many songs. Songs have that, again, like perfume. They take you right back. But I think it would probably be Counting Crows, Accidentally in Love, which is a really good, fun song. But it was the song that when my husband and I used to speak, uh, he would have that. It was like subliminal. I don't know what it was. I was like, you weirdo. That was subliminal. Were you trying to make me fall in love with you? And he goes, oh, maybe. Um, but he would play that in the background. And it just always reminds me of him. Did you have that at your wedding? No, we, we don't do music at weddings. So we didn't have that at all. So we don't have music or anything like that. But about six years ago, I had the lyrics printed out on on a, on a sheet and, and it was embossed and foiled and it was beautiful. And my husband was like, oh my goodness, this is so cool. So yeah, like it's a big part of, of, of us coming together. I love that. Well, I love the relationship between you and your daughter. When I was watching your TV show and I know you mentioned your kids in the book as well and they're a big part of your work really, aren't they? Your, your family. So we cooked the angel cakes as well from your book, which we really loved doing. And my son's three and they both did the icing on the top. And I said, it doesn't matter how messy it looks. It's kind of supposed to look messy. It's What, what do you think it is about baking that brings out the child within us? Because when I look at my son, he just wants to crack eggs into a bowl and mix flour in. He just loves it. And I just let him do it. I don't care if it makes a mess. But there's something about eggs flour and and putting it in the oven that seems to really tap in to a child's psyche yeah I don't know what it is but you know it's not I mean you say that and then you think you know what I remember when my kids were little if I said could you just chop that celery up they'd love it they'd do it badly but they'd love being involved and I think 
I think the reason why I think kids love being in the kitchen so much, whether they're baking or cooking, is the fact that I think often the kitchen feels like a very a grown-up space. And I think when they're allowed into that space, I think it's like, what? You're letting me be in your space? And I think that's what makes it really special. Because I used to find that with my kids. It's like, okay, we've cleared up. Now you get to come in here. And they're like, what we can do it. It's like, yes, you can. And it's nice because actually now that my kids are like 16, 15 and 12, they have so much more confidence in the kitchen. They don't ask me when they need to make something. They just go in and pull out a chopping board and and they're off doing their own thing. So it's lovely. It builds confidence and it builds, it allows them to believe that the kitchen is their space as well. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. Because when I was growing up, I don't really remember feeling like that about our kitchen, but I'm trying to make it like that for my kids. I think also you have a different type of a conversation when you're doing an activity. So like if you're chopping something together and I think sometimes you can have quite emotional conversations because you're absorbed in this physical thing that you're doing. Whereas when you're actually eating the food, maybe you wouldn't talk in the same way. Absolutely. I think um, somebody once told me when you're talking to your kids, don't talk to them face to face. Don't talk to them eye to eye. Talk to them side by side because then it doesn't feel like you're confronting them. It feels like you're beside them. And I think cooking is very much similar to that. I think it's the idea that you are next to each other and you're there for each other rather than being in a confrontational situation. So I find that that's what cooking does. I think when you are side by side and you're not looking at each other, it's easier to say things that you wouldn't normally say. So yeah, it's when we say therapeutic, it's definitely, definitely therapeutic. Yeah, I think that could apply to me and my sister or me and my mum as well, that when you, you're actually working together to make something, you are going to have those, perhaps those more heartfelt conversations or have more of a laugh because you're not, yeah, you're not looking into each other's eyes going, yeah. Well, this is my last question. So I, I remember the speech that you made when you won Bake Off. I'm sure everyone listening does as well. It's so memorable. And I know you've said in the past that people say that you've inspired them and people are still really moved by the speech and I was and I wondered what do you think it is that people why people feel that connection to your story because so many people do and yeah what do you think it is that why it touched so many people Uh, you know what I never expected that to happen you know I never expected to make that speech and I certainly didn't expect it to have that reaction that it's you know still memorable seven years later but I think I think when people watched me on the show, I think they could see me growing in confidence bit by bit. And I think that is just human, isn't it? Just to watch somebody to grow week by week and to see a difference in them or maybe even see a spark. And I think lots of people that I speak to say, you couldn't even, it's like you couldn't even look straight at the beginning. And then by the end, you were like, felt like a totally different person, which I didn't see. I felt, I felt I was nervous in the beginning as I was in the end. But I think... In terms of that speech, I think lots of people realise, for me, it was more than cake and it was more than the baking competition because that speech came from somewhere deep, deep inside of me that, as I suppose, was desperate to get out. Like I wanted to be able to say those words to myself. And then I did it on, the, on a national platform, which was ridiculous when I think about it. But I think people remember it because it resonated with them because that speech, it, it felt like, even though I was talking about myself, you could take those very words and you could be talking to yourself or anybody else around you. So I think um, whilst watching me, I think lots of people perhaps were questioning themselves and, and, and asking themselves and digging deeper into themselves. And then when when that, those words came out, I think everybody knew that it was more than cake. 
And it's because it was you saying it as well. If it had been someone they hadn't invested in, I think it's also because you are so gloriously vulnerable in the way that you, you know, you put yourself on the line. You, you really, really care about what you do. You're not someone who's closed off or you feel emotionally invested in the food. It's so, you're so passionate about it. It's so important to you. So I think that's another reason that people really fell in love with you because you made it feel like, like the childminder said, like she's one of us. It was because it was you saying those words as well as what the words were and because it looked really unplanned and I'm sure it was. It was in no way like, hey, I've, I'm, I'm definitely going to say this if I win. It, no, it was just was so, definitely. yeah, it was just wonderful because it was like, well, if I felt like her up to this point, then why can't yeah. I feel like her now and tell myself the same thing? Yeah. I'm sure you're going to have people coming up to and like decades to come every day and, and saying the same thing. Um, thank you so much for talking to me today. I feel like we've, yeah, we've covered so much and um, we have. <laughs> yeah, I've really, really enjoyed it. And I just thoroughly recommend this book to anyone, people who are very confident at cooking. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And also people who aren't confident like me and who are pushed for time. Thank you for listening wherever you are. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review and help get the word out. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Nadia's other books, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm Izzy Sutty. See you next time. Listener.